Chapter 18 of For God and Gold. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. For God and Gold by Julian Stafford Corbett. Chapter 18. Just 16 days after my ink was dry, the great bell in the church of Nombre de Dios was calling men to complines as the sun went down. So it might have boomed over the waving forests and darkening sea any time the last fifty years or more. Yet I doubt if the people would have doffed their broad hats or crossed themselves so peacefully tonight had they known in what other ears it sounded besides their own. I doubt their prayers would have been more fervent that night had they been aware how the stars that just began to glimmer were looking down on four boats crowded with men that were striking a hull and dropping their grapples hard by the mouth of the Rio Francisco, scarce two leagues from the point of their bay. Yet there we lay in our three pinaces and the shallop, seventy-three desperate souls on the eve of our great attempt. The ships and the rest of the men had been left behind, under Captain Rance, at the Isle of Pinos, twenty-five leagues away, and we had come on, each man with the comrades he chose, as far as could be. I was with Frank, Harry, with Mr Oxenham, the other pinnace being in charge of John Drake, and the shallop under John Overy, the master of the lion. Everything had been done to encourage the more faint-hearted, and we were most excellently furnished with muskets, calivers, pikes, fire-pikes, targets, bows, and everything such an enterprise could need. Portioned to each man according to his skill and disposition. Yet many a heart must have beat anxiously as we lay waiting for the dark night, and would have done so still more had the mariners been aware of all that their commanders knew. For at the Isle of Pinos we had captured two small frigates from Nombre de Dios, wherein certain negroes were lading planks. From these men, being very kindly used, we heard that their countrymen, the Cimaroons, had fallen upon the town and nearly surprised it but six weeks ago. These Cimaroons were African negroes, who having risen against their masters some eighty years ago, had fled into the woods and now were become two nations that lived in the country on either side of the way from Panama to Nombre de Dios, each under its separate king. For defence against these people, our prisoners told us soldiers were expected from Panama and elsewhere, if they were not already come. Nothing could have been worse for us, for now we knew that the town would be on the alert, and perhaps full of soldiers. Yet, wishing to make the best of a bad case, our captain freed these slaves and set them ashore, that they might seek their countrymen and bear them a good report of us, in case it might fall out that at a future time the help of the Spaniards' enemies might be welcome to us. We who knew these things kept them to ourselves, very thankful for our increased force. Frank, I know, saw how ill this fortune was for us yet he was more cheerful and resolute than I had ever seen him when he called the boats about him that he might say his last words to the crews. Come close, said he, that I have not to speak too loud, and so be heard by any negroes in the woods, whereby those in the town might have notice of our coming, which I should much grieve at. 
for I am loath to put them to all the charge, which I know they would willingly bestow for our entertainment, seeing that we come uninvited. Putting them thus in cheerful heart, he went on to tell them of the vast wealth of the place, which was all open to them, seeing it was unwalled and little defended. Then he spoke again of all his wrongs, both at Rio de la Hacha and San Juan de Urloa, and of the bitter cruelties of the Spaniards to English mariners, whom they caught in Spain, and told them how he was now in certain hope of God's favour to win a recompense for all these things, since it had been vouchsafed to him to get so near his end, utterly undiscovered, and with so excellent a crew of men, like-minded to himself. This cheerful speech much comforted us all, and I saw Harry and the sergeant lie back and go to sleep, being all hands at the work. But I could not close my eyes any more than the greater part of the men, who soon fell to talking of how strong such a place must be, till Frank, seeing how things were going, called on Mr Oxenham, who was in the next boat to us, to tell the story of the founding of Nombre de Dios, to keep the men from thinking too much. Well, my lads, said he, sitting up on a barrel, it was the early days of the Indies then, when Don Nicuese was named at Carthagena Governor, Grand Admiral, Captain General, and I know not what braggadocio titles besides, of his new province of Veragua, with 750 men and a fine fleet he set sail, bragging, I doubt not, to his maestro del campo, or whatever he was, Lope de Olano, of all that was to come of it, yet ere he was half way, they say, his whole force were like to mutiny, because of his cruelty and harshness. To punish his wickedness and tyranny, a furricano burst on him in the midst of his journey. The proud fleet was scattered past recall, and the haughty governor cast away. What miseries of hunger and cold and weariness he suffered none know, but at last he was found by Lope de Alano, half-starved, having no food but palm-tree buds and such like wretched stuff, instead of all the dainties he had brought to fill his belly. The only thing that was not changed in him was his cruelty and harshness, for never in all their sufferings would he bend a jot to his men. All that was thus left of his navy came at last to a port which Columbus had once discovered. A mariner who had sailed with the old admiral said it was a fair place for a settlement and conducted him thither, getting curt thanks for his pains, you may be sure. The old mariner was right, but he had forgotten the Indians, who so overdid their welcome that Nicuess made haste to depart thence, leaving twenty of his men behind. Baffled and sullen, he sailed on to the next port, where he profanely cried, In the name of God, let us stay here, and hence yonder town, that is to be ours to-morrow, was called Nombre de Dios. Then, having but a hundred men left out of his seven hundred and fifty, he laid the foundation of his city, and here, for a while, living miserably, without fit food or clothing, in wooden huts, he resisted the constant assaults of the Indians, till thirty more of his men were lost. They dared not stir beyond their camp for food. Fever was slowly eating out their hearts, and they were at the mercy of God. When one Calmanaris, putting into the bay, found them, 
They were then, of all men, it is said, the most miserable, being, as it were, dried up with extreme hunger, filthy beyond all speaking, and horrible to behold. Yet through all Nicuese clung to his cruelty and harshness, and the King of Spain's commission. Calmanaras took pity on him, and carried him to the new settlement at Darien, which as yet had no governor, that he might be set over the people there. But when they came thither, the settlers remembered his tyranny and wickedness, and saw by his demeanour that though all else was dried up in him, yet the devil was not. So they, being resolved to be rid of him, took an old rotten brigantine, which they corked with iron, and set their would-be governor therein, with his seventy men, starved and fever-bitten. In this, as their only hope of life, and being too sore-sick to resist, they sailed, and the sea alone that tells no tales knows what their end was. Never more was a man of them heard or seen, and Nicuas was called ever after Destichado. Destichado, cried Frank, as Mr Oxenham ended his tale, and a right name too, for surely the Lord made him luckless, and suffered no angel to prosper him in his ways, because of his wickedness and cruelty, and turned away his face from yonder town which he founded, because he knew the wickedness that would be done there, and the sinews of wickedness that would come thence. Yes, lads, the Lord has deserted Nombre de Dios, and tomorrow, of his justice and mercy, will deliver it to the hands of his people. Then one struck up the new Protestant ballad they loved so well. We will not change our credo for Pope nor book nor bell, and if the devil come himself, we'll hound him back to hell. By this time it was dark night, and we gladly took to our oars again, rowing hard under the shore, that we might not be seen of the watch house. So we continued till we recovered the point of the harbour, and there we lay to again to wait for the first grey of dawn when our captain purposed to deliver his assault. It was still full two hours to wait, and I could see how anxious Frank was as to how his men would get through them, for if it had been hard to keep them from their talk before, it was doubly so now, when no one might speak above his breath. Wearily an hour dragged away, and the men were growing more and more uneasy, shifting about and whispering a great deal, as they watched nervously for the first glimmer in the east. Would God it were day, whispered Frank to me. How shall we ever pass another hour of this? The poor lad's courage is oozing out at their finger ends with all this lingering. See, see, said I, for even as he spoke a faint grey streak appeared on the horizon. There it is at last. Never a bit, lad, answered Frank. It is only the moon rising. Still, it shall serve for dawn today. No one has seen the sand glass but I. There was a merry twinkle in his eye as he passed the word. Dawn, dawn, he said in low tones. Out oars, lads, yearly now, and still as mice, and God help our service. How pleasant was the dull rattle of oars after our painful silence as we rowed round the point. All was gloom as we bore towards the town, save for a few lights that twinkled here and there, and one that moved slowly across the bay. As we came abreast of this, we could see in the growing moonlight that it was on board of a ship of some sixty tons, which had just arrived. Her crew seemed soon to catch sight of us and to take alarm at our numbers. 
for we saw them cast off their gondola, which shot away immediately hard for the shore, like the ghost of some evil monster. Not so fast, not so fast, my gallants, cried Frank. Be not at such pains on our behalf. Come, my lads, we must save them this trouble, and carry the news ourselves. Now, smite for all that is in you. The pinnace leaped under their sturdy strokes, and we headed to cut off the gliding shadow from the shore. It was a sharp struggle, for the dons rowed well and their boat was light. Still, our sinews soon told. Seeing they were beaten, they stopped irresolute, and then with some blaspheming cry, made over to the opposite side of the bay. What, so rude, laughed Frank. Will you not stay to fling us one little word of thanks for the labour we save you? Well, better manners to you, and a fair good morrow. And now, lads, hard for the town. We could soon see it in the gloomy light, sunk snug amongst the soft forest-clad hills. I had hardly looked to see it so big, for, by the few scattered lights that twinkled far apart, I judged it was at least as large as Plymouth. As we drew near, a sandy beach showed dimly before us, sloping down from the nearest houses, which were scarce twenty yards from the water. There was no quay, nor anything but a half-ruined platform, on which stood six great pieces gaping at us. Not a sign of life was to be seen, so without more ado, we ran our pinnaces aground and leapt out into the water undiscovered. Down with the culverins, my lads, cried Frank, as quietly as might be. With that, a rush was made at the platform, but even as we reached it, up jumped a gunner, who must have been sleeping against one of the pieces, and ran off screaming into the town before we could stay him. We could hear his cries die away amongst the houses, and then for a few minutes all was again as silent as death. Still, we knew all secrecy was over now, and we went to work with a will. Culverin and Demi Culverin were tumbled off their carriages and rolled into the sand, and then to our captain's sharp orders, we set about our other dispositions. There was a good deal to be done, getting the arms from the pinnaces, lighting our firepikes and matches, and getting into our companies. All had been well ordered beforehand, yet quick as we were, before we had done we heard the troubled waking of the town. First came a low confused sound, rather felt than heard, and then scattered cries, with the brave blare of a trumpet. As the cries spread in the murmur, now on this side, now on that, a light flashed in the church tower, and the great bell began booming out a hurried alarm. Now it seemed that drums furiously beaten were running up and down. Farther and wider spread the cries, and louder rose the murmur. A scream of some terrified woman went shrilly up, then another and another, and the murmur began to increase to the dull, mingled roar of a multitude suddenly alarmed. Far and near the clamour waxed, shriek on shriek and cry on cry, followed incessant, till at last the whole town was filled with that strange and terrible sound, which is like nothing else on earth, and above all, boomed the bell. We were ready at last, so leaving twelve to keep the pinnaces, we hastened as had been arranged, to the mount on the east side of town, which our captain had learned the year before, it was their intention to strengthen with sundry pieces of ordnance. This it was necessary to our purpose, and we should first hold with a party of our men. So, leaving half our company, 
of whom I was one, to guard the foot, Frank hastened up the hill with the rest. He seemed a long time gone as we stood inactive, listening to that terrible tumult of which we could see nothing, growing ever louder and ever wider amidst the crowded houses, and the great bell booming continually over all. Not a sound came from the mount above us, and we could tell nothing of what was happening to our comrades. At last we heard the clink of weapons coming down, and our captain ran to us with all his men, bearing the joyful news that no ordnance had yet been mounted there, though all was prepared for it. This is a most merciful dealing of God, said Frank, for now, look you, we shall have all our men for the plaza. Plague on them how they squall. We will give them somewhat to squall over anon. Jack, take you Mr Oxenham and fifteen of his company round by the king's treasure house, by the way you know, and enter the plaza by the eastern end. I will go up with the main battle by the broad street, give them plenty of music of drum and trumpet, and I will do the like, that they may see they are attacked from two sides, and increase our numbers for us with their fears. Away went John Drake and Mr Oxenham with their fifteen men, a drum, trumpet and five of the blazing fire pipes we saw them disappear yelling horribly with much grisly noise of their instruments to the no little discomfort i doubt of those who still slept in like manner we took our course by the lurid glare of our fire pikes with an equal or greater din of trumpet drum and arms being forty-four men in all the plaza lay towards the upper part of the town so that on coming to the top of the street, which, being very sandy, made us short of breath with our running, our captain called a halt. Creeping on under shelter of the houses, I got a sight within the square. In the midst was a goodly tree, and near to it a market cross. Farther again to the right was the church, from which the great bell boomed continually. From the cross to the church, I could see the glimmer of a long row of matches by whose movement I judged there was a company of hark busiers gathered there waiting for us, but I could see nothing of them because of the gloom that filled the place. In the farther corner to the left, where they told me the road to Panama left the square, rose a house much larger than the rest. Here by the light of sundry lanterns I could see a great throng collected, with several companies of soldiers. I should think there were a hundred matches or more burning there. Wherefore, having made a complete discovery of the plaza, I crept back to inform our captain. Hark ye, my lads, cried Frank, when he had heard my report. At the word we will advance into the square. Mr Overy's crew with the gentleman to the right, the rest with me to the left. Stand but for one volley and then close. Forward now, in God's name. A roar of small shot greeted us as we sallied into the square, and the bullets tore up the sand amidst our feet. I saw our trumpeter fall forward in the midst of a merry blast, and heard Frank utter a sharp cry, but there was no time to see what was happening. Already our arrows and bullets were making the Spaniards sing in the left-hand corner of the square. I discharged my pistol with the rest, and then sprang forward by Harry's side, rapier and dagger in hand straight at the line of matches we dashed every moment i looked to see them belch their fire and hear a storm of hail about my ears ten more strides and we should be amongst them 
plague on the fools, cried Harry, who was leading. What mountbank dispositions are these, cried the sergeant at his side. Not a man was there. It was but a string of matches hung from the church to the cross to terrify us, as if we had been simaroons. Back, back, cried Harry, back to aid the general. With an angry roar at being so befooled, we ran back under the broad branches of the tree in the middle of the plaza, and so leaped out to help our comrades. Even as we did so, I heard a volley at the end of the square before me, and saw John Drake and Mr Oxenham, with all their party, rush out into the plaza, and with a loud cry, hurl themselves at the throng. Now we were all at hard push of pike, crowding the amazed throng into the corner of the square. Yet we had work to do, for the Spanish soldiers held their ground well, in spite of the press. For a time the thing seemed to hang in a balance. I remember little but a wild turmoil, wherein I was at point, and cut half mad with excitement, and all around were the butt-ends of muskets whirling, and pikes and bills clattering, as they were thrust and parried. My ears were full of the din of the fight, the shouts and clangs of weapons, and the screams of women flying out on the Panama Road, and still above all the great bell boomed unceasing. Now they were giving way, our twelve fire-pikes being well armed with long steel-heads, were doing their work above all the rest. None dared stand before the flaming weapons. Step by step they gave us ground, till suddenly the press broke up, and flinging down their arms, they fell to running out of the Panama Gate, as hard as they could skelter. Away we went after them, driving them before us like a flock of sheep. Continually they cast away their weapons, which at last lay so thick that many of our men were hurt by them not being able to avoid them in the darkness. So we left them to scamper out by their grand new gate, which they had set up to prevent the Cimmeroons entering, little thinking the first use they should find for it would be to run out of to save their skins. Being thus in possession of the plaza, our captain made haste to set guards at the entrance of it and sent a party to stay the bell, which still boomed on through it all for we knew not how many soldiers might still be in the remoter parts of the town to muster at its noisy summons. Then he called on a prisoner whom he had taken to lead a party of us to the governor's house. What do you think of our venture now? said Frank to me, his face beaming with triumph. Now you shall see where all the mules from Panama are unladen and what they bring. That is well enough, answered I, but will you not first look to your hurt? Hush, lad, said he, it is nothing, a fly-bite. Nay, but your boot is bloody where the shot tore it, I said. I tell you it is nothing, answered he testily. Hold your peace or we are undone. I said no more, marvelling at the constancy of this man, who seemed to think nothing of a hurt, which as far as I could see was enough to have laid any other man on his back long ago. By this time we were conducted to a great archway, in the tall house of which I have spoken, beneath which was tied a splendid jennet, ready saddled, as though for the governor's use. On one side were steps leading upwards, where candles burned, and shed a bright light into a large cellar on the opposite side. I could see it was a chamber of great length, partly by aid of the candles, 
and partly by the moonlight that glimmered in. Along the whole length of one side, from floor to ceiling, was a pale, cold glimmer, which looked very strange to me. Several of our men were staring at it with wide eyes and mouths. What is it? said I. What is it? replied Frank. Why, silver! I could hardly believe it. Yet so it was, a pile of silver bars, as I should judge, ten feet in breadth, twelve in height, and seventy in length. I was altogether amazed to see my dreams of the Indies more than realised, and hardly knew if I were waking or not, till I heard Frank, who had been questioning our prisoner at length, cry out to us. Not a bar will I have touched, said he. I brought you not here for that rubbish. In the king's treasure house there is better stuff. Gold, lads, gold and pearls, enough to fill all your pinnaces and more. So thither must we go, and not a bar of this shall be touched. I think there were many who would have been well satisfied with the silver, and hardly came to obey Frank's orders. But he was so resolute in them, that there was nothing for it but to do as he said, and return to our strength, which was posted about the great tree under command of John Drake. As we neared them, one came running out to say they could not break into the church or stop the ringing unless they fired the building, which they craved leave to do. Nay, that you shall not, said Frank. By ye and nay have I sworn never to injure church or woman, whatever come. Let him ring till he bring a thousand devils about us, I care not. But fire the house of God I will not, howsoever it be defiled with idolatry and superstition. So the bell boomed on, as loud as ever, being very distressful to hear so long, and giving me at least a strange feeling of evil at hand, which I would gladly have shaken off. When we came to our strength, many of the men, who seemed to have been scattered about the plaza, came running up to the tree. Amongst these I marked Sergeant Culverin, and saw he had a gay silken sash about him, though I took little note of it then being more concerned with another matter, for we found most of the men in some alarm, for which I could not blame them, having that ominous sound of the bell in their ears continually. Moreover, large masses of inky clouds were rolling up over the town, as though that booming were a witchcraft which was summoning some hellish means to overwhelm us. No wonder then, I say, that some of us had a sense of coming danger. It seems the first fear that beset them was for the pinnaces, since they had heard shots down by the shore, and next for themselves, lest they should be overwhelmed with soldiers and unable to escape, since they had heard news from a negro that a 150 small shot and pike men were already come to the town from Panama. Therefore, to allay these fears, our captain sent down his brother and Mr Oxenham to the pinnaces, with their party to search into the matter, and then join us at the king's treasure house. Thither we go now, lads, cried Frank. They say it is strong, but I think there be those here who shall find a way in, since we know what its lining is. By this time all the stragglers, not a few of whom came from the governor's house, were gathered in, and much encouraged by our captain's cheerfulness, we all went off to the king's treasure house. But just as we neared the place, the pall of luring, turgid cloud that overhung us was rent asunder. A dazzling flash of lightning lit up the deserted town, and instantly an awful crash of thunder drowned the noise of the bell. 
a few great drops fell heavily on the thirsty sand and then in a moment there fell on us such a deluge of rain as none can picture who have not been in the tropical regions there was nothing but to run helter-skelter to cover for the saving of our powder and bowstrings the nearest shelter was a certain piazza or penthouse at the west end of the treasure house and to this we hurried to find for our no small comfort that captain john drake was already there with his party whereby we knew the pinnaces were safe the flare and crash of the storm was now almost unceasing so that we could only hear now and again the hissing roar of the rain seeing that we had already suffered injury from the wet and would have been undone entirely had we left our cover we were forced to wait where we were till the storm abated it was a great mishap that it fell so for at our present post it was by no means possible to get into the treasure house since on that side there was a wall of stone and lime very strong and without openings over which we might have broken our hearts entirely or ever we could have broken half way in thus we were forced to be idle and stand listening to the awful voices of the storm which the devilish spells of the spaniards had brought upon us many there who had never seen so sudden or terrible a tempest could hardly be comforted by our captain's promise that it would soon be past once more they began to talk together harping still on the strength of the place on old stories of the mighty witches they used to be amongst the indians and above all on the report of the soldier's arrival which jack and mr oxenham had found to be true it was this way said jack as we gathered round in the penthouse when we came down to the platform we found the pinnace men alarmed for our safety since they had heard so many shots and parties of hark busiers had been continually running down to them crying que gente que gente then said they we cried out we were english whereat the soldiers discharged their pieces blindly and ran away at last came a negro who would not go away though they fired at him three or four times but ever he cried out for captain drake and craved to be taken aboard this at last they did when he told them of the hundred and fifty soldiers who had come to guard the town against the Cimeroons. Not knowing how many might still be in the town, and being broken in spirit, some with wounds and others with the terror of the storm, they began to talk openly of the danger of staying longer. Look, you, cried Frank at last, what silly child's talk is this? Did I not ever say I would bring you to the treasure house of the world? Why, so I have, and do I not say I will bring you off safe? why so by god's help i will is it not for this you have toiled and endured so far and now you are here at the door will you run away for fear of a few score of braggadocia spaniards who are shaking well nigh out of their shoes for fear of you shame on you lads whom i thought were like-minded with me and resolved to grow rich on these treacherous false idolaters come what may go all of you who will and when you get back to england tell them frank drake brought you to the mouth of the treasure house of the world and you were afraid to fill your pockets tell them that and blame not me if they cry you out upon the fools not a man stirred though i think there were many had a mind to it was growing near dawn and we knew that as soon as the spaniards had gathered their wits together and found out how small a number we were they would return and make an end of us if they could
It fell very fortunately that the storm now began to abate. So our captain, willing to save more murmuring and not desiring to allow the Spaniards too much time to pluck up heart, gave the word to move. Stay you here, Jack, said he to his brother, with Mr Oxenham, to break open the treasure house and carry down all the gold and pearls our pinnaces will hold. I, with our strength, will get back to the plaza and hold it till we have dispatched all our business and relieved these gallants of their great anxiety in keeping so much treasure. As he spoke these cheerful words, he stepped forward and to our horror rolled over in the sand. His two brothers had hold of him in a trice and Jack took his head on his knee. As I saw him lie helpless there, so pale and death-like, and his blood flowing so fast as to fill the very footprints we had made, it seemed that the great bell, which boomed still its unceasing toxin, was no longer sounding an alarm or spell, but rather ringing out the knell of my friend's heroic spirit. Frank, said Jack firmly, though I could note a strange tremor in his voice, you are so hurt, you must come to the boats. Not without the treasure, answered our captain. Not without something for the lads. It is nothing, only a scratch, that made me a little faint. No, Frank, said Joseph Drake. You are sore hurt. Your boot is full of blood. You have lost enough to kill two men already. We will have no more of it. Sergeant Culverin was now at our captain's feet. He had taken off his gay silk scarf and was very skilfully tying up Frank's leg to stay the bleeding. My hearty thanks, Sergeant, said Frank very feebly. That is it. Now I can walk and dispatch our business. That you never can, said Jack, nor shall try neither. You must come back to the boats, Frank. No, Jack, I will not, answered our captain, so low we could hardly hear. Not without gold for the lads. Aye, but you must, urged his brother. We will not stay another moment for twice the gold in all the Indies. Your life, lad, is worth more than that. What say you, mariners? The sailors all cried out that it was well said, that they had enough already, and not another finger would they stir till they knew their captain was past danger. So in spite of all Frank's protests, his two brothers raised him in their arms as gently as women, while the sergeant put a skilfully contrived sling under his legs, that his hurt might pain him less. So recovering him a little with some drink, we started to carry him down to the pinnaces. Still he would not be content, though we said we would only take him aboard to have his wound dressed and return. First to me and then to another he pleaded, but all gave one answer, that they would not stoop to pick up gold if the street were strewn with it. So it endangered his life a jot, not only out of their love for him, but also in regard to the great riches he could bring them to if he lived. This last reason eased his mind a little, but he was more grieved than ever when our surgeon had searched his wound in the pinnace and told him it stood with his life not to go ashore again. Nor would he be in any wise content till we had promised to take that bark which we had seen before we left the harbour. So as we rode out whence we came, the sun rose gloriously and the bell ceased its clamour and that most high and noteworthy attempt against the treasure-house of the world was ended. For such indeed it was in my judgment, and not to speak more, lest modesty be strained. I hold that every partaker in it should deem himself fortunate. 
Not only did we 70 men, under our unmatched commander, take the town and hold it for nigh on two hours, but of a surety we should have plundered a hundredfold, more than we did, had it not been for our captain's most unhappy hurt, or even for that storm, whereby we lost half an hour of time. As many think not without reason, through the hellish spells of those who rang the bell. The Spaniards made shift to set one of the culverins on its carriage again, before we were free of the haven, and barked at our heels a bit. Yet could they not prevent us taking the ship, which we did without great resistance, and found it full of excellent wine to our great content. This we accepted with much thanks for their loving care of us, and carried away to a certain island about a league to the westward, which is called the Isle of Bastimentos, or Victuals, and there we went a land. End of chapter 18